Here we are. Hey, my name is Kirk Parnum. Uh, you guys, some of you guys, this isn't my first time teaching now. Um, as I was getting ready to think about what we could talk about today, uh, when I taught two weeks ago, I taught from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, talking about heresy. Um, one of the things that always sticks out, and I didn't talk about it when I was here, is you know, at the end of chapter 1, there's two names that are mentioned, and he says, don't be like Alexander and Hymenaeus, right? because I've turned them over to Satan. And I think, gosh, what is it like? What if Alexander and Hymenaeus repented and came back to the fold, but yet still there they are in 1 Timothy for everybody to think they're the total heathens that they were at the time. So, but today we're gonna, we're gonna talk about the authority and veracity, the trustworthiness of scripture. Um, I, I was gonna do chapter two, that was my full plans. I sat down at my computer last night, started going over my materials. And I went, to, I got to this, and it just, it came up, it was, I've got this Bible studies file that I have on my computer, and I went, you know, it never hurts to remind ourselves that this book that we've placed our very lives on, that we can sink it so deeply in our heart that we can trust it, and we can tell the world why we trust it, right? And although a huge part of it is faith, right? that God reveals his word to us, and we believe it because of the Holy Spirit, right? We're incapable of comprehending the words of God without divine revelation. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's good theology. I believe it's good doctrine. Um, but in those moments, in those still moments, when we're struggling and we're going, ah, 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 we can go back and remember some of the things we're going to talk about today, about how it was formed, why it was written, who wrote it, and why it can be trusted, and why the scientific method for testing the scripture does not hold up. And I think it's good apologetic for us in our dark times and also for those who oppose us. Okay? Lord, thank you for your word and the passion that you've given me for it. And Lord, I know that I am woefully disobedient in so many ways. But I rest in your grace, and I rest in your call on my life to be an evangelist and an exhorter of the church. I pray, Lord, that your gifting that you have given me would bear fruit so that it would bring you glory. In Jesus' name. Before we can dive in to the veracity of Scripture and why we can trust it, we have to take on something a lot more basic than that. And it's the fundamental, presupp this, the fundamental presupposition of our faith. There's two of them. Did anybody, anybody familiar with what they are? God is, that's correct. That's number one. That's our fundamental presupposition. God is. He has existed eternally. There is no beginning. There is no end. He is. Do you know what the second one is? I'm not him. <laughs> that kind of that kind of goes into that one, that's for sure. That's for sure. Correct, that God has revealed himself. He revealed himself. And he revealed himself in two ways. Number one, in his general revelation. His general revelation is the world we live in, the order of nature, the fallen nature of mankind in comparison to us not being God, right? Um, I mean, we were talking about it yesterday. We were sitting up at Crescent Lake up in, uh, on the Olympic Peninsula. It was a gorgeous day with my little two-year-old granddaughter. We threw, my, me and my two-year-old granddaughter threw so many rocks in the water, I am pretty sure we raised the level. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. So I was sitting there with my son-in-law. Uh, he's a philosophy guy, and I'm a bit of a philosopher, amateur philosopher myself. And we're looking around, and we're looking at the perfect order of this lake. Right? And I said, how is it that somehow or another, people who claim to know science tell me that perfect order came from chaos. The false doctrine of, we'll give you some nerd words, the false doctrine of ex nihilo, something from nothing. There is not a single scientific theory whatsoever that proves that chaos can create order. Francis Crick, the discoverer of one of the discoverers of DNA, said no matter how much it looks like it's designed, we must remember it's not designed. <laughs> Go ahead and don't believe your lion eyes. So God is, and then he also revealed to us in his special revelation. 
His special revelation are in two parts, but it's the same. Through his word, he, God revealed himself to us in his word. And who is the living word? So the word of God, both in written text and in the personhood of Jesus Christ, are the special revelation. The only way that we can know God is first and foremost through the faith in the son that he sent, right? And then in his written word. Interesting little piece of history. I'm a history nerd. And how important God's word is has affected culture in ways that we don't even know. You guys familiar with Noah Webster? He was the first person in America to write a dictionary of the English lexicon. I don't know if you've ever read any of the historical documents from Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Madison. The spelling and punctuation is all over the place. I don't know, have you ever seen that? Extra E's, extra U's, extra I's. Noel Webster told his friend, I believe that God has called me to write a dictionary. Yeah, see, you guys all have the same expression that I'd probably have when my buddy said God's called me to write a dictionary. And Noah said this. He says, I believe that I have been called by God to write a common American language lexicon. And when he was asked why, he stated that when God chose to reveal himself to man, he used words. And that means that the meaning of those words are important, and we must have an understanding of them. It gives me goosebumps when I tell that story. I've told it hundreds of times. The purpose of Scripture, right? What is the purpose of Scripture? To reveal God. To reveal God. What else? To reveal God. <laughs> To reveal man and our nature and our sin nature and who we are in comparison to him back to God is and we're not him, right? Right? Yeah. The Bible contains a dimension of knowledge that is totally missing from the secular world. Secular world says it's about me. It's always been about me. It's been about my experience. And if we even look at the Bible as we read it, we see that that's the heart of man. God's word stands against that. It's the most it's a, it reveals the true purpose and perspective of life. Come on in. How are we doing? We're talking about the authority and veracity of Scripture and why it can be trusted. I'm Kirk. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Justin. The Bible is probably, or actually it is, the most influential book that's ever been written. Um, it's been translated into more languages than any other piece of literature in the history of mankind. More than 2 billion people alive on the earth right now um, embrace, even at least nominally, its teachings. So it's very interesting that the world tells us so many things. Millions who live in nations that once learned to read from the Bible, and here's the sad part, sent Bible-toting missionaries around the world cannot even name the books of the Bibles or explain bi basic biblical doctrines. Uh, John Barna, you familiar with him? He's a very uh, well-known Christian uh, st statistician. Um, and he says, surveys done in recent decades that show that many professing Christians have very little real knowledge of the Bible. And that's unfortunate. So what are some of the objections the world casts towards the scripture? It was written by men. It was written by men. OK. Fallible. What? It's fallible. It's fallible. There's full errors, right? Well, thanks for bringing that up. We're gonna we're gonna dissect that one here in a little bit. Okay, my favorite apology for that one is when they say the Bible is full of contradictions. <laughs> I usually say, okay, yeah. Name three. Give me three. You know, there's only one, guys, and it can be explained. There's a there's a contradiction in the Old Testament about the timeline of a certain king's reign, and so that's the one that they always go to. Well, look, in this book, it says his reign was from here to here. And then I can't remember where it's at. It must be in Chronicles. But in Second Chronicles, it says it's here to here. But it was disseminated in the fact that the northern kingdoms of Judah, the northern kingdoms of Israel used a different calendar than the southern And they line up perfectly. In all of the New Testament, there are less than 40 lines that are disputed. In all of the New Testament. Less than 40 lines that are disputed, one of which is, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. That section of the Lord's Prayer is not in the most reliable of the 25,000-plus manuscripts. No doctrinal 
implications. That's why it's included most of the time, because it is a biblical truth. It is his kingdom. It is his power. It is his glory. But yeah, um, the Bible, the other ones are, um, it's written by men. People are not God. Therefore, it's not God's word. There is no evidence that the, word, that the Bible is the word of God. Back to science, right? Scientific observation, right? And the Bible does not hold to the test of science. <laughs> Interestingly enough, if you look that uh, the weather cycles are covered, I want to say in the book of Job, that from the clouds to the ground, from the ground back to the clouds. Yeah. The whole purpose of pestilence. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, in those difficult times, I was sharing earlier a little bit about my story of losing my grandson and my brother within a year of one another, um, that um, suffering is not something we should avoid. It is the very nature of why we follow God. It is the pen. And when people say, well, if there is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? And, I, and my common response is, is the problem's not God, the problem's man, right? So what kind of emotions trigger when you get into these discussions or have these discussions or see them in media? What kind of emotions does it trigger in you? Probably defensive. Okay. Anger, okay. Yeah? Disbelief. Disbelief, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I still have that bit of frustration, but uh, I love to engage in these conversations. It's like, this is a very important statement that you're making. Please tell me that you've researched it and you've done the work to know in your heart of hearts that the Bible's not trustworthy. This is important stuff. Have you done the work? So when I became a Christian, without glorifying my past, I had no moral compass. We'll just leave it at that. And if it did, it just spun in a circular direction, okay? So when, I, when God called me to repentance, I liked all that stuff. That's why I did it, <laughs> right? That's why I did it. I mean, I did drugs and did all the things that I did because I liked it, right? So when God called me to repentance, I dove into the Word because by golly, if I'm going to do this, it better be true, <clears throat> right? And that's one of the things that God gave me in that. Um, now I'll skip this one. Well, maybe not. In your life, do you consider yourself adequately prepared to discuss the authenticity of the Bible with people? Be honest. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, because that's why we're here. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to share with you some of the things that the Lord has taught me in dealing with these things and dealing with my own doubt. I know I'm probably the only person in this room that struggles with doubt. You know, that really, Lord? Yeah, I mean, Monday morning's prayer. God, I am not okay with all the suffering that's going on around me. I'm not okay with it. And praise the Lord, he answered my prayer and says, neither am I, Kirk, because it's not how it's supposed to be. And I go back to Romans 8. We live in a fallen and broken world, right? Please come in. So that being said, if we're not prepared, that's okay. And what's really important, I hope, from our time together is that we can talk about just a few simple things that can put our own hearts at rest so that we can walk in confidence and know that the Bible can be trusted. And we're not going to dive into original languages, and we're not going to dive into all of that stuff, although that's fun, and, but I'd like to keep you guys all awake. Um, so the Bible was formed um, perfectly. So here's a good time to take notes. It's an ancient collection of writings comprised of 66 separate books written over 1,600 years by four zero distinct authors on three continents, Europe, Africa, and Asia, in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The Old Testament has 39 books written from approximately 1500 BC to 400 BC. The New Testament has 27 books written from approximately 40, possibly earlier. They're finding some manuscripts now that are dated around 2829, but they're tiny, tiny, Papyrus doesn't hold up to weather very well. Um, the Jewish Bible, the Tonk, is the same as the Christian Old Testament. So the Old Testament that we have in our possession today was pretty much 
the books that were being used by Jesus when he was going to synagogue and going to Hebrew school, right? Different order, but the same books. Uh, the original Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic, while the original New Testament was written mostly in the common Greek, which is fascinating. Why common Greek? That's the language of the area. It wasn't excluded to the scholars, too. It was available to everybody. And yet, it remains consistent from cover to cover. 1,600 years, three continents, three languages, 40 authors, consistent from cover to cover. Uh, my favorite Casting Crown songs, and it goes way back, I'm gonna date myself, is called The Word is Alive. You know, I love that song. <sighs> the canon of scripture, you guys hear that word thrown around a lot, canon? The canon is a Greek word that means rod or straight rod. It means trustworthy. Um, the canonization of scripture is long and drawn out, but I'm just gonna give you the short version. The Hebrew Old Testament was given authority based on the fact that these were books that were being used and were authoritative during the time of Jesus and his contemporaries. Uh, they are not arranged in chronicle, uh, chronological order. They are arranged by type, the law, history, poets, and prophets. Um, in 70 AD, after the destruction of the temple, the new council of the Sanhedrin was formed and much discussion was given about the arrangement and addition or omission of books in the authoritative scripture. They, re they reviewed the whole field of religion, and in the end it was decided there was no reason to change the holy books of Israel. We have, the, we have history. Um, I was gonna, we'll skip going over the Gospel of Thomas. Um, you guys ever heard about the Gospel of Thomas? It's refuse. <laughs> it's refuse. <laughs> It's refuse, and, but that was about 10, 12 years ago um, during the, well, it was longer than that, the whole Da Vinci Code thing, right? The Gospel of Thomas kind of reared its ugly head again. Um, it has no consistency with Jesus' teaching with the other four Gospels. It was never used in wide circulation during the first century of the church. Um, uh, Pliny never mentioned it. I mean, it was just it was, and it's just, there's some weird stuff in there. Like, uh, there's a quote in there that Jesus says, a woman must become a man in order for her to be saved, <laughs> right? And all that stuff, which is ironic because we all know that Jesus made his public declaration of ministry to a loose woman at a well in a foreign country. And that was not a coincidence. I love that story. That's my great apologetic when they say Christianity is sexist. And I said, oh, really? You realize that Jesus announced his public ministry to a loose woman at a well in a foreign land. It takes sexism and racism right off the table. Yes, there are professing Christians who are sexist and racist. I absolutely believe that with all my heart, but that's not Jesus' fault. Vody Bauckham, who's one of my favorite apologists, everybody know, anybody know Vody? His new book, Fault Lines? Yeah. Oof, brutal. But great news, you know, Vody took on the Southern Baptist Convention and he's been, he's been elected to office now. Yeah. He's nominated. But from three years ago, when he took him on and said, hey, you guys are going the wrong way, and facing all of the stuff that he went through, and praise God, I honestly believe if Vody Bauckham hadn't been a black man, he would not have been able to say the things that he said. And now it looks like he's going to be one of the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, which, guys, I know we're Calvary and we know we're separate, but... As the Southern Baptist Convention goes, so goes mainstream evangelical Protestantism. Like it or not, <laughs> it's, the biggest, it's the biggest Protestant uh, denomination. But Vody says this, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human origin. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents, first and foremost. And we see that in 2 Peter 1.16, when Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love. 
with him I am well pleased. Ourselves, we ourselves heard this voice and it came from heaven and were with him on that sacred mountain. Written by eyewitnesses in the lifetimes of other eyewitnesses. Very, very important. There is not a single document in antiquity that is reliable that denies the resurrection of Jesus. That is a very, very powerful apologetic. Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, Hieratus, all of these historians who documented all this stuff that was happening from the first century through the fourth century, not a single one of them denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's one Hebrew scholar, one, who said it didn't happen. And we could probably assume that he was pious. <laughs> right? If there's anything that we learned today that I'd like for you to leave, is that one. Why you can trust the scripture, especially the New Testament, written by eyewitnesses and the lifetime of eyewitnesses. And there's not a single reliable historical document in all of antiquity that refutes the veracity of the New Testament. That is generally a trump card with your militant atheist friend. They'll want to talk about the weather. <laughs> because, I mean, think about it. Jesus walked around in Jerusalem after his resurrection in front of all of these witnesses, right? you got to think somebody, somewhere, would have said, yeah, it didn't happen. That tomb was, that body was in that tomb on, by sundown on Friday night, and it's still there to this day. Not one. <clears throat> Um, first Peter, continuing with first Peter, and we have the word of the prophets that have been made more certain and that you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, we must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation for the prophecy has never had its origin in man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? In the lifetime of other witnesses reporting to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment. Luke, in his introduction of his gospel, he said, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated Everything from the beginning. He went to the primary sources. Um, I don't know if anybody's watching, uh, watching, watching The Chosen at all, but there's a great scene in there where Luke is interviewing everybody. He's interviewing Mary. He's interviewing Matthew. It's really quite fascinating. Again, that's the artistic side of me. I love to see things expressed in art. It seemed good to also write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught to you. So Luke's goal was to make sure that he got the eyewitness accounts. And guys, we have the eyewitness accounts. You know, we go to Acts when they're calling out Peter and John. And Peter says, hey, you decide whether it's good for us to listen to men or to listen to God. But I'm here to tell you, I cannot stop, talk, stop talking about the things that I have seen and the things that I have heard, eyewitnesses. Um, first John, uh, excuse me, uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, first John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. Hold on to that. When you question the scriptures, when people question you about the scriptures, these are the accounts of eyewitnesses that have not been refuted. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that God has seen in his divine power that he can defend scripture. We don't have to. Let's see where my next notes are. I've got so much here. This is generally something I do over a period of about six weeks. Translation. You mentioned that it had been translated so many times. Anybody spend any time with Jehovah's Witnesses? I love hanging. They don't, I, I miss them coming door to door. I really do. I do because I want to show them, I really want to show them the love and the grace and the mercy 
and not the legalistic box checking nonsense they follow. But their argument for their version of scripture, the New World Translation, is that it has been translated so many times that it has been diluted and therefore it's not trustworthy. And unfortunately, they don't know that Charles Taze Russell had to pay a Bible publisher a huge settlement for plagiarizing the King James Version and converting it to himself. He did not use any of the original manuscripts, even though he claimed to do so. Um, Charles Taze Russell had the education of about eighth grade. I'm pretty sure he wasn't able to read New Testament Greek <laughs> or Old Testament Hebrew, unless he was anointed. So translation, um, this is mind-blowing. Um, the game of telephone, remember we all played that in school, teacher would say something in your way and it'd go all the way around. That's the argument that many people say. It's been translated so many times it can't be trusted. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament alone is dramatic. There's over 25,000 ancient manuscripts archived thus far, of which 5,600 are copies and fragments of the original Greek language. Some manuscript texts date to the early 2nd and 3rd centuries, with the time between the original autographs and our earliest, earliest existing fragment being within 40 years, comparatively. The book of Isaiah, right? That was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s, in its entirety. That was an amazing revelation, and with the exception of some punctuation, it's identical to the book of Isaiah that we have in our scriptures today. Yeah, that was... And that was interesting because that was in the time when um, the Bible was getting further and further attacked. Young man walking along the beach throws a rock into a cave and he hears a pot crack. Yeah. And they go up and look and there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. No, God didn't have any of that. <laughs> Little kid walking on the beach, throws a rock into a cave. And then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. I missed them when they were here. They were here about 10, 11 years ago. I missed them. Interestingly, for comparison, uh, manuscript evidence surpasses the reliability of every other ancient writing in all of antiquity. Here's a comparison. Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars. There's 10 manuscripts that remain, with the earliest dating to 1,000 years after the original autograph. Pliny the Younger's Natural History. Seven, ma seven manuscripts, 750 years since Pliny wrote it. <laughs> I gotta say it. Thucydides history, eight manuscripts, 1300 years from the time when he wrote it to the manuscript that they have. Okay? Um, uh, Herodotus's history, eight manuscripts, 1350 years. Plato, this is my favorite. When people get into this, I say, You believe in Plato? You believe in his writings? You believe he existed? Well, yeah, of course I did. You know, I went to college and, you know, this and philosophy and all that stuff. There are seven manuscripts from Plato's writings, and the closest there are to the original writing is 1,300 years. So you're telling me that Plato with seven manuscripts 1,300 years after the events are more reliable than 25,000 manuscripts within 100 years of the original events. Come on, at least try to be pragmatic, <laughs> right? Well, why is that? The human heart is desperately wicked, like Jeremiah tells us. We want to argue for God not existing. I was looking at my little two-year-old granddaughter. Children have to be taught not to believe. Her wonder, her amazement. I mean, you can just see that she knows that there's something bigger than her out there. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Um, <clears throat> nowhere in the body of ancient literature does a text enjoy such a wealth of attestation than the Bible does. Nowhere. Nothing even comes close. And we know that's because God chose to preserve his word. God didn't care too much about Plato's philosophies. It's cool. I mean, I'm a history guy. I love it, right? But it's not life. The word of God is life. And God protected it. Homer's Iliad. I love Homer's Iliad. Anybody familiar with it? That's Cyclops, the sirens, you know, all the stuff. Uh, the, probably my favorite version of Homer's Iliad is, Oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. <laughs> am I the only one? Am I the only one? Should I be talking about that stuff in church? I don't know. I love that movie. I love that movie. Homer's Iliad, the most renowned book of all of ancient Greece, um, is the second best behind the New Testament. There's 643 copies. Um, 
There's 674 disputed lines of text compared to 40 in the New Testament. In fact, many people were unaware that there are no surviving manuscripts of William Shakespeare written in the 1600s. There's not a single original manuscript that belongs to Shakespeare. There's only, what, from the 1600s, so 400 and some odd years, right? But nobody doubts that King Lear was written by William Shakespeare, do they? Right? This pales in textual comparison. 5,600 copies and fragments of the New Testament in the original Greek together assure that nothing has been lost. Nothing. Right? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will not pass away. There's like goosebumps again. Fulfillment of prophecy, right? Together, it assures us that nothing's been lost. And in fact, all of the New Testament, except for 11 minor verses, can be reconstructed outside the Bible from the writings of the early church leaders. So not only do we have the manuscripts, we also have the writings of the early church leaders that corroborate them. Um, that even those minor verses can be, can be put together. So in real terms, it's the best attested ancient writing of just number of documents, time span between the events and the document, right? And the academic discipline of textual criticism assures us that the Bible translations we have today are essentially the same as ancient Bible manuscripts with the exception of a few inconsequential discrepancies such as punctuation, a scribe's loose hand on a note. The New Testament can absolutely be trusted. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful way to say, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And these are just simple things. And everybody is so in love with science and facts now, right? Right? That we can use this opportunity to say, you know, I've researched this because I placed my very life on this book. I mean, I gave up drugs for this. I wanted to make sure that I, you missed the first part of my story. But, um, and it describes supernatural things. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. Specific prophecies. In Psalm 22, while Jesus was being crucified, written by a man a thousand years before Jesus was born, who had never even seen a crucifixion because it had not been invented yet, describes the crucifixion in Psalm 22. Specific prophecies. Um, I don't have this in my notes, but it's one of my favorite pieces of knowledge. That in order for Jesus to fulfill 15 prophecies, which he didn't, there were, I want to say, I can't remember what the number is. The odds are 1 in 60 quadrillion. You know how many zeros are in a quadrillion? That's 60 zeros. No, 40 zeros, excuse me, quadrillion. 1 in 60 quadrillion for Jesus to, to fulfill 15 prophecies. They fulfilled them all. Well, except for the ones we're waiting to happen. I don't know when that's going to happen. Prophecy never had its own origin in the will of man but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The other one is science. They say the Bible does not hold up to science. <laughs> Have we heard it? Have we heard it? Here's the problem. You cannot use the scientific method to observe history. Science doesn't tell us that George Washington was president. In order for it to be scientific, it's got to be observable, measurable, and repeatable, right? Even though I guess not so much anymore, <laughs> right? That's because people love their narratives, right? We do not observe history through the lens of science. It's a non-player. You cannot prove that through the scientific method that George Washington was the first president. You use the evidentiary method. Evidentiary, not scientific. In order for it to be scientific, if we use the scientific method that George Washington was president, number one, he'd have to be in front of us. We'd have to see it happen again, and we have to measure what he did. So first of all, trying to use science as a way to disprove the New Testament is a straw man argument. It doesn't exist. Now, we can talk about the nuances of you know, some of the descriptions. And remember, these are Bronze Age people experiencing the world around them in a Bronze Age culture. I'm pretty sure that and their language was not as definitive as ours, right? We can't assume that they're going to be scientifically correct on everything that we see as they were observing it, right? And that goes back to, and that's a whole different discussion on the way we break scripture down of prescriptive versus descriptive. Descriptive language is, hey, this is what happened. Prescriptive language is, hey, do this, right? 
<clears throat> and so if we want to use the evidentiary method to prove the veracity of Scripture, we go all the way back to the beginning of our talk, written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 authors, most of whom didn't know each other, on three continents in three languages, but consistent from cover to cover. It's mind-blowing. The Bible isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. I think one of the biggest mistakes we've fallen into in modern Christianity when we're sharing the gospel with people, we say that. I've tried the Bible and it works and so therefore it makes it true, right? I think we've all, I, I think at some point in our walk with the Lord we may have said that, but that's not the case. The Bible works because it's true. In John 17, two through four, I love the high priestly prayer. Father, oh, we're almost out of time. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those who have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ who you sent. I have brought you glory in earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So I have to wrap up. I've got about another six hours here of this stuff. Does anybody have any questions? You're not really out of time because church isn't over until 1230. Oh, 1230? Okay, I thought we were done at noon. Okay. Okay. You really have like an hour of speaking if you wanted to take it. Well, maybe. Sometimes if you go too long, I've learned that you miss the points you want people to carry. I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, but thank you. Also, too, I've got my wife's out of town. I've got a honey-do list about this long. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I get up in the morning. Uh, she left on Thursday morning, and I get up really early because I come to Seattle. And I look out on the counter, and I go, the list. I'm cold. <laughs> and then I go over to do my devotion to the computer, and there it was. <laughs> it's really pretty short. It's really pretty short oh, because we live in a new home. So our home's only three years old, so I don't have a whole lot of chores I have to run the house. Um, it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. If there's anything I really want you to carry out of here, that's the one. Written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. Now, there's a man that's much smarter than me, and that's why I have this big, huge anvil tattooed on my arm, and that's a cover-up tattoo of something that was quite ugly. Um, his name is Winnell. He's a 1899 Bible scholar, and he says this. These scriptures we have tested. We find that they search our hearts. They reproach our shortcomings and prompt us to try and be our best. We have rested our hearts upon them in dire trouble and found them the consolation and rejoicing of our hearts. Not only the word, but the book, it convey, the book that conveys it to us is dear. This book is a mother to us. The reputation of this book is like a mother's reputation. And so it comes to pass that our language regarding the Bible and every word of it is apt to be an intense, unmeasured, and sweeping, for love cannot bear qualifications. Very important here. We're going to stop there. What does that mean? True love of something does not bear qualifications. We don't get to pick and choose. There are plenty of things in the scripture that cause tension in my heart. I'd be a liar if I said otherwise. I'm not okay with the genocidal God of Joshua. I'm just not okay, guys. I'm just not. I don't have to be okay with it. I don't have to be okay with it. I understand why. I mean, I could break down the whole thing and trying to, you know, trying to establish this race of people and all that stuff, but I'm not okay with it. And that's one of the things I love, too, is when somebody who has a little smattering of the Bible, they go, well, God is genocidal. I said, yeah, he was. It still bugs me. And I still believe it to be true, and I still trust him, okay? <clears throat> Without qualifications. Now I got to find that strong feeling is impatient of nice calculations of less and more. The church as a whole and officially cannot commit herself to that which is provisional and subject to correction. We have to be subject to correction through God's word. Only when individual learning has done its work and won the consent of scholars Generally, can the church express herself? Meanwhile, this work of biblical analysis will be carried on by many of men, of many minds, of many tastes, and many manners. One of the things I've learned that in all the reading that I do, I read lots of stuff from contemporary authors. I've got a couple of book recommendations if you're interested. Um, one, uh, yeah, one is um, 
Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. And he is talking about recapturing the wonder of being a follower of Christ in a disenchanted world. Like who? Cosper, C-O-S-P-E-R. And then why is Rebecca McLaughlin's book's name Confronting Christianity? Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And that one's tough. And you may not agree with everything that's in there. It might make you a little angry, but it's certainly thought-provoking. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin takes on the 12 current sticking points of the world against Christianity. Have you read it? It's fantastic. When she talks about her same-sex attraction and how she loved Jesus more than her own desires and was able to overcome it, it was beautiful, beautiful. That is, yeah, phenomenal. Um, True, these are the days of scorn and of scoffing, but this is no new thing. All of the ages down from now to then, some men have spuriously declared, the days of religion are numbered, but her sacred book outlasts those critics. Resting her hand upon the Bible, the church can say, here is an anvil that has worn out many hands. 1899, we are not living in anything new, guys. I love that. Here is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. You ever watch a backsmith? The one thing that doesn't wear out is the anvil because it's harder than everything that gets worked on, right? And finally, the reason why these things are important for us is from anybody, everybody heard BJ Sermon? The simple discipleship moment. In 2 Timothy 2.15, you know, I think in some ways, and this could be historically incorrect, I think in some ways the two books to Timothy and to Titus were kind of Paul's farewell, saying, hey, guys, my time's short. Make sure you do these things. And he says to Timothy, do your, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. We have no reason to be ashamed. None. And what's amazing is we didn't do the work. God protected his word through the ages. So all we have to do is share a few things with somebody who's questioning the thought in it. And these things that we talk about today could be about maybe being winsome and bringing an angry atheist to being less of an angry atheist, or maybe our brother and sister in Christ who are really struggling with, I'm having a hard time understanding why I can't beat this sin. And the Bible says this, but I can't get there. And God covered that in Romans 7, didn't he? That's where I go. I am a Romans 7 guy, right? The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The things I want to do, I can't seem to do. And you can tell that, brother and sister, you can trust God's word. The Apostle Paul, the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, felt just like you do right now. Stay the course, hand of the plow. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repute, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. Having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves the teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's our charge. So I hope that in our time together that we re-cemented that we can trust God's word. We can trust the things that it teaches us. We don't always have to be comfortable with it, right? And it's funny to me, as I just read 2 Timothy 4, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's called a Google algorithm. <laughs> Is it not? Your searches indicate your results. So whatever articles you're clicking on, it forms the algorithm, and you've surrounded yourselves with people, with the, with people who are telling you what you want to hear. You know, and I think that as we move farther and farther into this more hostile land of our ministry, that the better equipped we are and the better we are at being so sure of, so sure of, so sure of the things that we know, we lose the desire to be defensive when we're questioned. 
And when we're questioned, we can say things like, hey, did you know the Bible was written over 1,400 years by 40 authors in three continents in three different languages, and yet it's consistent from cover to cover? Oh, but it's been translated so many times it can't be trusted. No, that's not the case. There's over 25,000 manuscripts that are nearly identical from the period of the eyewitnesses. How much peace does that give you when I say that? I know it does me. I'm a construction superintendent. It's a hostile environment out there, you know? And they, you know, it will, it, I, my guys love me. I love my guys, but, uh, and they're rough on me. I let, I, I, I let them have open season on the old man. I don't care, you know? But let's fulfill our ministry and being confident that we can trust God's word and remember that it's not our job to defend it because he's already done it. <clears throat> Comments, questions? So what are some of the more trustworthy translations? <clears throat> Anybody know? King, uh, <coughs> excuse me, King James, New King James. Yes, it is not. Oh, easy now. <laughs> I'll hit you with my ESV study Bible. <laughs> so we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what else? NASB, New American Standards, rock solid. New King James is solid. None of them are perfect. Why? Because Greek does not translate well into English. It just doesn't. It's interesting. My name Kirk. It's K-I-R-K. Asian people cannot pronounce it. They don't have R sounds that follow hard consonants. I'm click, crick, cur. If they have a strong, if they have, an, if they have, my name is Gaelic. Kirk means man of the church, which we could talk about that testimony. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's a Gaelic word that means man of the church. And I was born an illegitimate child to a, to a mother in 1962 and never knew anything about Jesus until he came, came into my life. But that's a real ironic story. It's mind-blowing. But um, um, the ESV, you know why it's considered less accurate, even though it had the biggest council of scholars in the history of a translation? It's biased towards Reformed theology. That's the only reason. It's biased towards Reformed theology. That's really it. And it's a matter of punctuation, honestly. And if actually, if you read the introduction here, it, they don't come right out and say it, but it is most certainly biased towards Reformed theology. And since I ref, I'm a Reformed guy, it works just fine by me. Um, there's, <laughs> there's lots of good versions. Just remembering, like the New International Version. That's the Bible I was discipled under. Well, it's not nearly inspired. It was never entirely to be inspired. It's a thought-for-thought -thought translation. It's not a true transliteration. It was never intended to be what people expected it to be. Now, unfortunately, in 2010, the Wokies got a hold of it and removed a bunch of gender language from it, <laughs> right? So that is what it is. Living translation, the original living translation is paraphrase. It's not, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But if you read it and you understand it and understand God's call in your life, what's bad about it? Right? Um, believe it or not, the King James has a lot more errors in it than people might actually want you to believe. So, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a bent then too, you know. But so, you know, I it, I think that you know the message is probably the one that makes me go. <laughs> why, why? Of course, you know, when I was teaching the Bible, I, I had to read so much of that stuff when I was teaching the Bible um, years ago. I had to, yeah, you know, I had to read the Da Vinci Code, right? Because I. I was an elder in the church, and I had to have an idea what these what folks were talking about. Dribble, just dribble with z with any with. Oh, and oh, and then I had to read the shack. Oh. 
No, I, well, I had to read it because, well, I knew, because I had a class of about 65, 70 people, and I knew that somebody was going to be reading that. And I couldn't talk about it if I hadn't. I know this is pretty un-American, but I generally don't talk about things unless I've read it, <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, I mean, I think that really, honestly, the New Living Translation is better than the original Living Translation from the 1970s, but I think more than anything is read it. The two that you want to stay away from is the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormon Bible. I mean, those are the ones you can stay away from. The message, I, I still just don't get. Um, in the 70s or in the 80s, they came out with one called the Amplified Version. Anybody remember the Amplified Version? Like they could turn one sentence into nine. They used a lot of, they used a lot of repetitive adjectives um, because, again, the Greek translation doesn't translate well to English. So they did that intent, so you can understand the intensity of the passage. I still use it from time to time, just like if I'm looking for something to really try and figure out. Anything else? Thank you very much. I was really blessed to be able to cement these things back in my heart and remember that he can be trusted. And to quote, anybody remember Tony Campolo? He is a Baptist preacher who, he, he got himself in trouble. He was a little ahead of his time. He dove into politics a little bit. He wrote a book called, Was Jesus a Democrat or Republican? And that pretty much, <laughs> yeah, it was a little rough on him. But he said this, he said, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I believe it is perfect word for word. I even believe the leather on the outside is genuine. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for your word and a heart to seek you. I pray, Lord, that we would be corrected, reproved, and set aside for your purpose. And Lord, I, I just take a second here and just be quiet and um, be mindful of the things I need to repent of. Yes, Lord, that was a short list, but you know. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless us, that you would embolden us, that you would teach us to love recklessly, that we would love like there was nothing to lose. And Lord, through doing that, loving people, loving you, and loving your word, that we could be like what BJ talked about, a nameless person who made a difference for the kingdom. And Lord, we give you all the honor and the praise and the glory for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.